Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me on the BIPOC Outside podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell, and today we're sitting down with Marty Fuller. Marty is an outdoors woman, fully and unapologetically. She is also a multi-sport athlete, an outdoor educator, and an outdoor leader. So let's get into it, shall we? But before we get into it, of course, as you know, this show doesn't happen without our title sponsor, the Outward Bound Canada Training Academy for Outdoor Professionals. With program locations across Canada that offer free programming to address skill gaps in the outdoor sector, the Training Academy is building the next generation of outdoor leaders. With a commitment to meaningful Indigenous representation, and by prioritizing BIPOC and 2S LGBTQ inclusion, the Academy is reimagining what the outdoor industry looks like. Check out their website to sign up for free fall sessions, visit obctrainingacademy.ca, or find their partner link on our website. We also need to shout out our presenting sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Mountain Gazette is a biannual large format magazine celebrating mountain culture, featuring beautiful long-form storytelling from real people who love the outdoors. These are stories you will sit with and savor. Each issue also contains stunning photography. These are magazines you'll keep and come back to. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Check them out at mountaingazette.com or find their partner link on our website. Marty, hello. How are you? Hi, Chris. I am doing fine. It's a delight to be with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so excited for this. Let's jump right into it. So your family is from Jamaica, but you grew up in New York. Is that correct? That is exactly correct. I was born in Florida, grew up in New York. My parents immigrated to the U.S. in their youth. My mom, when she was just 12, and my dad in his mid-20s. And so you're in Boston now. How did you get your start in the outdoors? Gosh, well, I think there's two answers to that question. I think I received a love of nature just kind of inherently from my parents, who both grew up in rural settings in Jamaica and grew up, you know, Jamaica, of course, shares the history of colonization and slavery that the U.S. shares. But Jamaica is a majority black country. Of course, there's tons of colorism there. And, you know, when my parents were young, there's a small kind of like white oligarchy. But in general, you know, it's a black country where there's a lot of celebration of blackness and comfort in the outdoors. So for my parents, it was just very natural to climb trees and play outside. And as my mom says, my, you know, my parents grew up in the 40s and 50s. And as my mom said, the only thing to do inside was chores. So why were we going to be inside? <laughs> very different from today. So different from today. So I really would say that my parents instilled that in me. But also there is a there's kind of an American or perhaps Western or North American angle into being into the outdoors, which has much more categorization around it, has much more kind of required gear lists and also has a lot of sometimes branding associated with it and particular cultures and subcultures. So I wouldn't say I'm immune to that. In many ways, I've, I've played right into it and have tried to extricate myself from some of it, but it definitely impacts me. I, you know, I love gear and my parents will never understand why I pay. I, you know, bought camping gear 
worth a thousand dollars or so just to sleep outside this with incongruous to them. <laughs> so I'd say my parents in one sense, but then also when I went to college, well, no, I would say, okay, when I was a child, I would go hiking with church groups and school groups on these quote unquote hikes as opposed to just kind of walks I'd go on with my parents. It'd be like, you're going for a whole day or half a day and it's six miles or it's eight miles and there's a destination and the destination is superlative in some way. It's a view or it's a lake to jump in, which, hey, I'm not complaining about. I was happy for those views, but it was very destination focused and I loved it. And I knew I wanted to do more of it. So when I got to college, I started to learn more about backpacking and being safe, spending extended time in the backcountry. And then when I moved to Boston and discovered that the White Mountains of New Hampshire were only two hours away, that's kind of when I started to really, really immerse myself in the backcountry. I got the question just the other day, and I'm accustomed to asking the questions, not answering them. I was like, when was the last time you went outside to play? And I'm like, I'm on my bike hours every day. And, and they're like, no, but you're commuting. You're getting groceries. You're, you know, you're going for a ride that has an objective or you're trying to achieve something. When was the last time you just played? I love that. I was like, oh, interesting. So yeah. tell me about the White Mountain area. I have not had the opportunity to to recreate there. I've never been there. And and watching your film, it's just so beautiful. So tell me about the Whites. Why do you love them? Give us the beta. Gosh, yeah. So the White Mountain National Forest is in New Hampshire and kind of creeps into western Maine as well. And like I just mentioned, part of the region is accessible exactly two hours from Boston. And that part is is like some of the kind of grandest and beautiful like sections. And then the kind of eastern and northern parts are more like three, three and a half hours from Boston. So it's all accessible from Boston. And in fact, something like 70 million people live within a day's drive of the region from Quebec all the way down to New Jersey. So it's a high use area, but with plenty of off the beaten path, beautiful, more remote areas to explore. Yeah. And it includes 48 peaks that are 4,000 feet or higher, which for the Northeast is, is high. In contrast, Vermont, which is kind of known as a mountain state and a ski state, only has five peaks, 4,000 feet or higher. Maine has 14 or 15. So those mountains are quite a draw. And we have a few areas of just exposed ridgeline where you can, you know, walk, traverse for a mile or more than a mile you know, just above treeline and, and all of the glory, the presidential verse is what most folks are familiar with because they may have heard of Mount Washington, which is the highest peak. Ajiokochuk in the Abenaki language. The region is the land of the Abenaki and the Wabanaki and the Pepe nations. So yeah, I mean, gosh, ask me any other specific questions about the region <laughs> that you want because I could kind of just talk for hours. So what... Tell me one of your favorite trail stories. One of my favorite trail stories. Yeah. Ooh, it's hard to choose. <laughs> How, man, just one. Okay. I was really... Can I t okay, I'm going to tell you two short okay, ones. Okay, tell me as many as you and want. And don't make them short. They're contrasting. They're, they're contrasting in, in nature. So one favorite story was just this past winter, I had scheduled a small group hike with a 
group called Outdoor Afro that I volunteer for. And so it was a bunch of Black folks from the Boston area kind of getting out on a winter hike. So I was kind of going to teach folks about winter hiking. And we were hiking one of the 4,000 foot peaks of the White Mountain region, as I just mentioned. And I was kind of bummed at the weather forecast. It was going to be a cloudy day, but completely safe for hiking, you know, low wind, moderate temps for winter. And But I knew there would be no views. So I was just a little bit disappointed. But it just ended up being just the amount of delight that this group of folks, most of whom were on their first winter hike, just you would have thought we were on the top of Mount Whitney in California, <laughs> like just some super grand peak. They were so excited. They were so just in awe of all of the snow and all of these ice crystals were forming on our hair. You know, black hair is so deeply and richly textured. And so the way that the snow forms, it just starts to look really cool. And I just captured some of the best photos that I've ever taken. I had my real camera with me. And just these, it just was such a lovely day. I think I've heard some, I've heard folks de- kind of describe joy or happiness as kind of like being surprised, like having low expectations and then being delighted and surprised. <laughs> so I think my expectations were so low for the day, but the amount of joy that we had together and delight that we were able to to find and kind of the simple worry of icicles forming on our hair and taking photos just, you know, made me so happy. And I was so grateful to the mountains for oh, that day. That's so <laughs> beautiful. That just came to mind. I know it's not like some exciting story, but it's kind of these simple things that, you know, I think are bring the most joy, as I just said. And then another favorite day was like a big miles day when I was working on finishing hiking the 48 in winter. There's this one hike that's kind of an albatross. It's really hard to do in the winter because it's 25 miles long. It traverses a ridge line up above tree line exposed to the weather people have died there in the winter and sometimes the trail isn't broken out for miles and miles so in my case I would just turn around there are very few people most of them like elite athletes with something to prove who would want to break trail and navigate because even if you navigate very well you're gonna you know you're gonna get off route from time to time breaking trail and navigating in the snow so it's just very hard. I had attempted it once the year prior with some friends. We'd had to turn around and I just, you know, woke up so nervous that day. The weather forecast said that the winds were going to be 50 miles or higher above the ridgeline. So we would, we thought we were going to have to certainly turn around at that point. Turns out we got up there. The winds were gusting at 20 miles an hour, which is not nothing, but it's safe. It's enough wind to, to kind of make you lose your balance from time to time, but it's not unsafe. And was blowing in a favorable direction for us in the way we were hiking. And, uh, you know, it took at least 12 hours <laughs> from like 5.30 a.m. to 7.30 p.m. But we finished it. I mean, I like was in such pain, couldn't walk after, but I was so thrilled to have accomplished that for myself. That's incredible. That's a long day. And in the winter, that means you're starting and ending in the dark. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, a couple hours of darkness on both both ends. So you have summited all 48 of the 4,000 footers, all is winter hikes. Tell me about the impetus for the goal. Yes. So it's not necessarily in my nature to to say I, I'm going to finish these lists 
have all these goals around sports and physical activity. It really isn't. Let me tell you, Chris, what happened, what had happened was, no, what happened is that I knew that I ultimately wanted to hike all these peaks in my lifetime. And some people do, do really say like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this in a winter. I'm going to do this in two seasons, whatever it is. A lot of people, a lot of white people and very few people of color, but a lot of people do it. But I only decided, oh, I want to get this list finished when I realized no other black people had done it. And I was like, this is ridiculous. There need to be black names on this list. It wasn't so much about me being the person or me doing it. It was about the ridiculousness of the fact that this is so inaccessible to black people. I was like, oh my gosh. So that's why I decided to do it. And I even just like on Instagram the other week, I said, so there's another list, the 67 highest peaks in all of New England. So it's just the 48 plus the additional 19 to complete the ones in Maine and Vermont. And I said, like, any black person who wants to beat me to this, please do. Like, <laughs> I, I just want the fellowship of knowing there are few of us doing it. But to be honest, like, I think I'm the only person in position to do it. Like with the skills and experience, I just climbed Katahdin in winter two weeks ago to do that. You have to, it's like a 20 to 30 mile hike with camping or staying in cabins, like pulling it, pulling in gear on a sled. If you want to do it in one day, it's like a 20 mile hike. It's a mountaineering trip. Like there's no route up the mountain where you don't have to know and be very comfortable with self-arrest. You know, so they're just, there aren't, there aren't that many, there aren't that many people in my region who want to do it, you know? And so I would think it would be so cool if someone just came out of nowhere and was like, yeah, I'm going to beat you. <laughs> I would love that. Maybe we could do some of the hikes together. I have like 13 left. There you go. Well, really remote in Maine and require navigation skills, potential for trail breaking. You really want to have a small team of people and requisite experience. So it's so funny that you, the language you use, how you call it ridiculous, because this is this is how I phrased the question. The next question I'm going to ask you. Let's confront first. Isn't it a bit ridiculous that in the year <laughs> of our Lord 2023, we're still talking about firsts for racialized peoples in the outdoors? Yes, it 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 truly is. Like it truly is. It makes me sad in many ways. Like I don't even really love talking about being the first person to do this winter list, but I've noticed that it motivates other people or gets attention or inspires people. And so that is what I'm all about, inspiring more Black people and people of color to reclaim what was stolen from us in, you know, the way that white supremacy has intermediated our relationship to nature. And so I'll use whatever cheap tactics are necessary. I'm fine with that. You talk about these are the sorts of trips, the sorts of expeditions that you want to have, like a community of people. And and you've talked a lot before about like the opportunity cost of spending time in the outdoors as a Black person, as a racialized person, because you're alone. Talk to me about that. Talk to me what people don't realize, what they don't understand. And let's talk through some ways to change. Mm. Oh, man. Nowhere to begin with that question, Chris. I feel like this could be a whole other podcast and that would be the sole topic we got all day oh gosh so I pretty much grew up in primarily white institutions from age seven on I was in a pretty diverse community outside of New York City as a young child but then was in a 
you know, white neighborhood, white schools, went to private school outside of New York where, you know, fancy, lots of fancy, well, people attended. I went to a private college and I've worked at mostly white institutions. So I think it's hard. It's hard when you're not a racialized person or you're when you're white person to see how difficult that is for those of us. Like as a white person, you might see around you black people who are assimilating into your culture, even though you probably never thought about that, that it is a distinct culture with like dominance. But if you have thought about it, you still might not recognize how much we're losing and how much we have to kind of earn and fortify ourselves to have healthy identities while existing in primarily white institutions. So I didn't even realize the extent to which I devalued my 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 beauty, my attractiveness, my intelligence, my history, my culture. I didn't realize that I'd been devaluing myself based on the messages I was getting from being surrounded by instant white institutions and white people who did not know that they were elevating their norms and their values above all others. And so the opportunity cost is that, especially in the aughts and the 2010s, hiking and outdoor community was so blindingly, inescapably white that I was just with my personal just free time, I was going from like my day to day in in like day in, day out in a primarily white institution, then spending my free time as well in a primarily white institution instead of like many of the other black or brown people that I worked with doing the black things on the weekends, whether that was like social groups, professional groups, hanging out with your family, whatnot. I did get to a point, I'm oversimplifying my experience a little bit. I did get to a point where I realized, oh, this is an issue. And I, I kind of blended how I spent my time. But I had to make that, that, that's a choice I had to make. I had to say, okay, do I want this weekend to be reminded of my worth? Do I want men to find me attractive? Do I want to celebrate my culture? Do I want to, you know, not have to explain myself this weekend? Or am I okay? Am I okay for now? Is my cup full? Is my identity preserved? So can I go spend time with this white group? So it was like, that was something I had to weigh. I love how up top your story, I love how your trail story talked about hair. It just, it just like my heart just swelled. Because it's true that like even the most committed of allies don't fill the gap of being without community. I grew up in, you know, in a central Canadian city that that was predominantly what it's diversified quite a bit as I've gotten older. But growing up, that was not the case. And my all of our extended family is on the East Coast. So, you know, we only saw them on the holidays and things like how do I figure out natural hair? What am I doing to protect my hair? And and the answer was always, well, you know, straighten the bejesus out of it and braid it up real tight, which is also not good for it. You know, <laughs> even the closest of allies, the most committed of allies, they just don't fill that gap of that lack of community. They really it, it, they really don't. And I it's funny, I'm just kind of writing an essay about this, how I would go on a yearly backpacking trip with some of my best white friends who I love and they love me and I would still come back feeling really drained, you know, and I talked to them about it. Like, 
they're not going to be such close friends of mine unless they are very deep into their anti-racism work and are working, are, are building towards being anti-racist in practice, not just in belief. But even so, it's just not the same for a number of reasons. I think some of it is is comfort and freedom of expression, shared experience. There's many layers of it, but but yeah, completely, completely agree. And sometimes that, like what you mentioned about what am I going to do with my hair, it's almost like a symbolic question because when you're saying that, that's just kind of a, a way for you to kind of, you know, to all of the other kind of disjointedness that you may experience or feel over that period of time, the weekend or whatever it is. It's wonderful that you, you know, you have a group that you are recreating with that you can address these things because and you talked about this in a blog you did, I think, for Melanin Basecamp, like oftentimes even whiteness is taboo to discuss. It's just become the norm. So how how do we confront that? Like what what strategies have you used in the past to front that that white normalcy? Yeah. So one of the main strategies I have is just to not spend time with the people who don't know they white. Like, you know, like black people see that say this like they don't know they're white. Yeah. Person doesn't know they're white. Like they have no racial literacy, right? That's what we're saying. Audience members who may not have heard that expression. No racial literacy, very little racial consciousness, lot deep discomfort. I talk a lot about, I think, I want to say this Claudia Rankine originally said this, but it may, every time I, every time I attribute something to a contemporary, then I find out it was really like James Baldwin or like <laughs> Frederick Gliss who actually said it. I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, we have. The scholarship and the genius, like n- there's little new, there's little, it's your bookshelf, there's little that we're saying that's new, but this idea of the invisibility of whiteness, which I think I attribute to Rankine because of some of her more recent work and her play, whose name I'm forgetting, that was really impactful. But this idea that that whiteness is invisible and should remain invisible. So it's off topic. We can't discuss it. Everyone becomes very awkward when you discuss it. And yet it's absolutely dominant in every sphere of life around the entire globe, from Antarctica to the North Pole, Australia to Turtle Island, absolutely dominant. And we are unwilling to address it. And that is the genius of white supremacy. That is a pure genius. I'm sorry, but I think you asked a question. I got distracted by you answered it. Let's switch gears a little bit. One of your more recent articles for Ski Magazine. And it was funny, my primary recreational choice is skiing. If there's a choice to ski, I'm going to ski. And and I do other things when skiing isn't a choice to try to Mm -hmm. fill the gap in my soul. So, and of course, I'm one of the few and certainly one of the louder people of color in my ski world. And so every single person sent me this article four times. And I was like, I saw it, guys. But... (laughs) Confronting the ski bum culture. So first and foremost, let's educate. What about the culture is exclusionary? So the ski bum, really that's a metonym or a stand-in for any downwardly mobile persona. I think what's so inaccessible about the ski bum is that very few social groups, aside from 
white people, especially white men, but probably white women also can decide that they are going to forego economic ladder climbing and either social ladder climbing or just preserving whatever social status you have to purposefully take on voluntary poverty and kind of live out a life like like that's the simple statement I was making with that piece. It is for a person of color to even just decide they're going to wear raggedy clothes and walk around town and then like try to be treated like a human. You know, society just doesn't give us, doesn't assume that we are trustworthy, professional, you know, just whatever it is, like a good person even. And so it's just may, perhaps a person of color. There are people of color who have taken on downwardly mobile lifestyles, but it's not with either some repercussions, some future limitation in terms of kind of you know, continuing to be able to provide for themselves or break into a more upwardly mobile, quote unquote, career track if they want to, you know, or, you know, facing discrimination in their day-to-day life. So I just really wanted to point out that it is a white privilege to be able to be a ski bum. In fact, I would say that persona is kind of an avatar for white privilege. It's true. The respectability politics are are deep and insidious and like my grandmother wore a pantsuit and a hat to the grocery store. My, the, exactly. the, you know, my, the, my black family members start their day with an ironing board on a Saturday. <laughs> and the idea that I would, you know, get off the ski hill and just like take off my outer layers and put maybe a, you know, a tunic over my base layers and then also stop at the grocery store on my way home to grab coffee cream is shocking to them. <laughs> yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's so much there's so much that I could say about how inaccessible skiing is and how expensive it is, whatever. But that was like not even the point of my article in the slightest. Really wasn't. Really wasn't. And I think that, you know, people who have a lived experience of this got it. And people who don't have a lived experience of this needed a little bit of hand holding. And and that was certainly some of the conversations that I had in my circles. I was like, yes, that is true. There's more here. No one's saying like you don't work hard, you white ski bum, or unless it is part of your mo to appear to not be working hard or to not work hard and to just ski. But but uh, no one's saying you who've taken on a downwardly mobile lifestyle that you're not hustling. But the hustle is a lot harder people of color that's that's the point and it's interesting that you call it like an avatar of the culture so let's confront this a little bit what does the lamenting of the loss of the ski bum culture which we've seen quite a few articles even a whole book come out about in very recent past what does the lamenting of the loss of that say about the culture of the ski industry well it's so interesting because the lamenting of the loss of it is positioned as being about climate change and mountain towns being expensive. And when that's the center of the conversation, I empathize with that. Those are those are impactful considerations that I care a lot about too, of course. But I think there is, you know, I think it's complicated. The people who say this are not unified. They may be coming from different perspectives and motivations, but I think there is, you know, potentially some lamenting of 
if not the whiteness, all of the the kind of benefits of exclusionary whiteness that skiing had in the past where, you know, mountains were uncrowded and the the big resorts hadn't sold a ton of lift tickets or passes so that, you know, there are a ton of people there or created programs to invite new people into the sport, bringing more diversity, you know, with, there's more pressure for people not to gatekeep about their secret powder stashes and whatnot. And I think there's some lamenting that happening too. And I think that's where people have to be careful and kind of look a little bit more deeply about kind of the root of what's making them nervous or what they're afraid of and find other solutions that don't include targeting groups who have not had the opportunity to ski. You reference Anthony Kwame Harrison, who is a favorite scholar of mine, and I'm forever shoving his work in front of people's faces about how modern era ski towns, modern era ski resorts and areas, how they're constructed sort of both physically and socially to privilege whiteness. Talk to me about that construction. Yeah. So I love, yeah. So Kwame Harrison, Anthony Kwame Harrison has this great paper called kind of something like oh, Everyday Racism. I'm forgetting the full title. I'm confusing it with this other paper that's called Black Skiing, Everyday Racism and the Racial Spatiality of Whiteness. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so I love this paper was really, really profound and just excellent scholarship. I recommend it to anyone who cares about skiing, doors or snow sports. But but yeah, he talks about so he talks about how, you know, ski resorts, for one, they're in mountain towns. Mountain towns are far from cities. Cities are where most Black people and other people of color were forced into in the 20th century, kind of the process, the very deliberate process of ghettoization and segregation in the cities pushed Black people into cities and into certain neighborhoods, which didn't receive the resources that the white neighborhoods got. And then, you know, as suburbs and park systems were created, they were promoted sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly as a way to get away from the city, away from diversity and to, you know, have your own enclave or be in a white enclave. And so, A, that's where mountain, that's where resorts are. These towns, not only were they not welcoming and sometimes they're still not welcoming, but they were just in off limits to people of color. And so, you know, they're far away. And then there's also the the socialization of the sport really was founded on Eurocentricity, Alpcentricity, I'll make that a word. <laughs> the towns were kind of built to look as though they were Swiss chalet, you know, the 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 buildings look like Swiss chalets. And, you know, we still use words like après, like French words to talk about what you, how you enjoy your time after skiing. Of course, all of the images of people that you would see would be very white and European looking. And that is kind of what was used to promote and elevate the sport. And that's kind of a lot of the, what we are kind of unraveling to this day, kind of those illusions still kind of are pervasive in skiing and the very practical fact that mountain towns are mostly white, were designed to be mostly white. And a lot of people of color, frankly, wouldn't even want to live in these towns because 
there most of the way. Like I mentioned earlier, oh. when we're not around people who remind us of our value and worth, we feel it. It's funny, you know, I think Veil was originally, it may have been Veil, it may have been Crested Butte. Like the original marketing for the first 40 years was the Alps of America. And you go to some of these towns and they look more Bavarian than actual Bavarian towns. Exactly. Bavarian towns are like, well, we've moved on. Yeah. You talk about this like sort of escape from the city and this mental construction that like getting away from problems of the city and crowding and diversity and all the things that make you uncomfortable. And there's also this sort of really false idea that you're escaping some of the problems of the city, like over-policing of racialized peoples in ski towns and natural spaces and public forests. That's very much a reality. Yeah, right. It's, it's no different, perhaps worse, because you're very easily targeted because <laughs> there are fewer of us than in a city. But something you brought forward that I have always thought really interesting, but haven't had an opportunity to really think through until your article was how certain snow sports subcultures have really co-opted Black culture in terms of music, in terms of fashion. So like, let's unpack the privilege of them. Mm. Oh, man. Yeah. So especially in snowboarding, you have, okay, snowboarding certainly based on like a kind of West Coast skater culture. But there's a lot of hip-hop infusion into that skater culture also. But it, but it also really draws on hip-hop culture and the style, the music. You see it in the swagger of snowboarders. Like, you see it in the way they posture, posture themselves. And it's pretty pervasive. You see it, of course, in the artwork and design. I think a lot of it kind of came out of this desire for snowboarding to be counterculture. You know, skiing's very straight-laced. It's maybe a little preppy, you know, more kind of displaying kind of well. Whereas snowboarding is meant to be counterculture, edgy. But yeah, the appropriation of... I'm fine with anyone appreciating this art forms created marginalized groups. But there's a careful line that crosses when that you cross when you either commodify it, when you identify too closely with it, seeking to really identify with what's positive and fun about it without having an understanding of the struggle and resistance that it's born of. And yeah, it's dangerous and it's frustrating as a person of color to see all sorts of appropriation happening in general, but especially in a sport. That is so exclusionary to Black people and people of color. So, yeah, it's really kind of boggles the mind when you think about it. And I didn't even mention in the article, but like reggae, reggae culture, too. And like me as a Jamaican, (laughs) snowboarders like embrace reggae, embrace. And I love like I actually love getting on the lift line and hearing reggae playing because I'm like, oh, you know, I appreciate it. And sometimes even dance hall, but it's always like the tame dance hall that you'd like here on NPR or something like that. But anyway, the line, the line is crossed very easily. And I think it's hard for some people without a racial consciousness to know where that line is between appreciating and over identifying with and commodifying. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. That Thank you for giving me an opportunity and a space to think through that, because I think about it a lot in terms of appropriating Indigenous art and the work mm. that I do academically. 
but it's it's more tangible when it's something physical as opposed to an attitude. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? You can point to it and call it out more when it's something physical. But when you see that it's just kind of infused in this person's whole or way of being, you know, the way white teenagers are love ab, African-American vernacular English. Like, did I even mention that too? Yeah, just like the slang word snowboarders use and... It's very strange for a 14-year-old white boy to call me sister. Mm, yeah. It's like, what, what do you know about sisterhood with me? <laughs> I know. And then here I'm saying, like, I'm, fi- I'm finna. I'm, I'm finna eat. <laughs> yeah. What? On God, son. What? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. It's a wild world we're in. You are an outdoor educator in addition to, you know, Being multi-sport and being in the outdoors, you do a lot of outdoor education. And one of your outdoor efforts through your collaboration with Outdoor Afro, you've offered tips to new swimmers. And and so like your family, my family experienced a water tragedy. And, you know, my father's generation worked really hard to make sure my generation understood water safety. And Mm. it, it wasn't a matter of recreation. It was a matter of water safety. And that was a privilege for us to be able to do that. It's not a privilege extended to a lot of Black families. And a lot of non-racialized people simply don't understand this. Talk to Mm. me about water safety in Black communities. Talk to me. What have we got to do? Man, well, it's funny. I'm able to quickly pull up some stats that I just knew I had in, in a PowerPoint. But, you know, in the U.S., this is data from the CDC from 2021. Native people drown at twice the rate of white people. Black people drown at 1.5 times the rate of white people. More black people happen to drown in pools. More native people drown in open water is wild to me. Disparities in drowning death rates between black and white people increased from 20, from 2005 to 2019. And the researchers don't know why. They don't know why. Like, this is a national crisis. Why is there not, like, freaking... Federal Commission on this, Commission on, you know, drowning rates, egregious drowning rates and water safety for Black and Indigenous people. 67% of Black children have no swimming ability compared to 36% of white children. Black youth between the ages of 10 and 14 drown in swimming pools at 7.6 times the rate of what of the same age range. And this is directly attributable to creation of beaches and swimming pools. So. In the, you know, there was a swimming pool building spree in the 20s and 30s. And that kind of like coincided with this desire to separate men and women in swimming facilities. And so while they were at it, they were like, oh, we are racist and we think black people have diseases and we think black men will prey on white women. So we want to, you know, make sure that it's all segregated, but we're not going to build pools in black neighborhoods. And any nice beach is going to be for white people only. Like, And this happened across the country. There were riots. There were white riots in the 1970s in Boston. You know, a couple of Black women wanting to access Carson Beach 10 minutes from where I live in Boston, like 19 in the early 70s, mid 70s even. So it's really simple. Like when we talk about a lot of the kind of outcomes today that are due to racialization. It's like complex and it's layered and it's like 
well, let's talk about all these factors. But in this case, it's really simple. We just weren't allowed to swim. We weren't allowed to go to pools. We weren't allowed to go to beaches. And so then, of course, you have generations of people growing up who've grown up unable to swim. They're going to be afraid of water. They're not going to really want their kids to swim. If they have access at all, it's probably expensive. So, so yeah, it is tragic and a national crisis. And we need to be doing more. I don't have the data for Canada, but I would suspect that it's similar. It's comparable. And oftentimes when we are, you know, abdicating for certain policy initiatives like like this would be, we have to use U.S.-based statistics. Canada, we have a polite racism here where it's a very much don't ask, don't tell. So we are terrible at keeping race-based statistics. Mm-hmm. Visibility of whiteness at work. Watch it work. Watch it work. it work. And so oftentimes we have to rely on, and we know that in a lot of ways, it's very comparable between Canada and the United States. Yeah. I lost my place and that's okay. You know, oh, the 70s, the 70s. I was around in the 70s. This is not that long ago. It isn't. I was born in the 70s too. Yeah. By six months. I love saying that. I love saying that. Hey. Um, I also really appreciated in your tips. Again, this seems to be a running theme. How you addressed hair protection and skin hydration (laughs) for new swimmers. It's like this kind of like this kind of ethnically relevant outdoor education is really desperately needed. But (laughs) like, yes, that that list for new swimmers was 100 percent written (laughs) for BIPOC. But, you know, white people can get a lot of benefit from it, too. But yeah, I was like, let's be clear. I mean, a lot of the reason that I quit swim team when I was 14 years old was because I was straightening my hair and couldn't take the chlorine. I was too vain to consider not having a straight hairstyle, which was the standard in 1994. Like you couldn't, I mean, there were still like either laws on the books or practices against wearing natural hairstyles. And there still are, but like, yeah. you know, there's so some states that haven't passed the Crown Act. To oh, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I, I wanted folks to know, because that's a big question I get from other Black people who like black women or or any kind of person, black person who wears hair in a way that's more elaborate than like close cut to their head wants to know how do I protect my hair? Yeah. So yes, those tips are in there. <laughs> Love it. We're going to share that with the audience in the show notes, along with a lot of other resources that we've talked about. The thing that I said when I reached out to you, this is the thing that stopped me when I watched the movie about your about you in the whites is at the very beginning and i actually had to pause the film and just like e and fangirl you identify yourself as an outdoors woman and you don't just say it your back becomes straight and you say it with such incredible pride and that just filled me with joy oh thank you you know we as racialized people we as women I find so many people are not willing to identify themselves with their sport. Lots of people that we've talked to on the show, I'm like, so you're a professional skier. No, you get paid to ski. You're a sponsored skier. Why do you not want to identify as a professional skier? I'm on the bike every mm-hmm. all day long. I don't identify as a cyclist. I feel like that's someone who's doing it bigger and better and more. So how do we instill this confidence 
in our, you know, in racialized people, in women to say, like, you can own this. How do we make other people own it the way that you own it? Watch patriarchy work. Patriarchy says, well, no, you're not. You're not the best. You're not the fastest, the strongest. Here's these tiers you haven't accomplished. Like, you're not really a climber, a skier, da, da, da. Exactly. And I, I won't say that I'm not subject to that insecurity at times. But but yes, I did sit up straighter when I said I was an outdoors woman because I was like, damn it, I am. I've been doing this for 20 years. I have hiked all these mountains. I have paddled up supers of the lakes. I have recreated. I have raced. I've done it all. Like, yeah, I'm an outdoors woman. It's incredible how often I get questioned about my preparedness, my training, my expertise. And it's really, it's it's not just by white men, it's kind of by everyone because we're all subject to this conditioning, all subject to internalized, like internalized racism or internalized sexism. You know, if we're, if we identify as people of color or as, or as women, I experience it mostly from white folks or white men, but I've, I've experienced it in all sorts of ways. And I have let that get to me at times, but I really cognitively now I refuse to. And so, yeah, I claim it. I have a lot of experience as an outdoors person and that's, that's who I am. Damn straight. Damn straight. Yes, you are. (laughs) Mm. I, we're going to put the, we're also going to link the film, obviously, in the show notes. And I want every, every person to watch it. And I want every, every person to pay very close attention to when you identify yourself because I think that's just so, so important. So you climbed all 48 of the 4,000ers. What's next? What do you have adventures planned, projects planned? What do you want to tell us about what's coming up? Yeah, so I really want to find more time to read and write. I'm trying to carve that into my life somehow because I do work full-time as a director of communications for a nonprofit. And I am grateful that I can, you know, take an hour off to do this with you and make that hour up later or whatever. There'll be a day when I work more hours, but it is a lot. I'm trying to fit a lot into my life right now. So I'm trying to find more time to read and write. I have more I want to say on this topic and other topics and more creative writing I want to do. I am excited. I'm taking a, um, a trip this summer with this awesome institute called the Free Flow Institute that organizes kind of like adventure writing workshops. I'm going with the like this indigenous Diné leader. That's something I'm excited about. I do want to, as I mentioned earlier, finish the New England 67 list sometime in the next couple of winters, maybe 13 weeks remaining. But really, I I really wanted to spend more time learning from the Abenaki leaders in the in the White Mountains. I want to become more proficient in, in my knowledge of like vegetation and to- topographical features and be a better observer instead of like a peak bagger. So that's kind of a goal, something that I'm, <laughs> I made it a goal. <laughs> I'm freaking American. It's, it's, it's a way that I want to be more. Yeah, so... That's kind of what's on my outdoor agenda right now. That's a great list. That's a great <laughs> list. It is It is very North American to, yeah, sort of goalize and codify 
the idea that we will become more observant. (laughs) I know that this is a working day for you and I want to be respectful of your time. So the last question I'm going to ask you is where do our listeners find you? Mm, Where do you find me? Well, find me in the mountain breeze. (laughs) In terms of following along with what I'm doing, Instagram is just the best place. It's where I post the most often and anything I'm doing, like I give a lot of talks that they're all linked in my bio on Instagram, which is where locks fly free, locks, L-O-C-S, dreadlocks, that refers to the Rostov spelling of it, D-R-E-D-L-O-C-S, if that means anything to anyone out there. So yeah, where locks fly free, best place to find me. Perfect. Listeners, as I said, you're going to find that in the show notes, links to a lot of the things we talked about, articles we talked about, absolutely the film. And that's your homework. You have to watch it. Marty, this has been a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Chris. This has been so wonderful to talk with you. There's nothing better than, there's no better like conversation than with another Black woman, especially. And I really feel like, don't have to include this, but like, gosh, do people know how privileged they are to get to hear Black women talking, right? Like, frankly, like talking, because we're talking to each other like we would to each other. Yeah. (laughs) Not really holding back. And so people are damn lucky. I hope they know that. And that is it for this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Links on where to find Marty and all of the things we talked about are available in the show notes at BIPOCoutside.com. This conversation was a privilege for me, and if you feel it was a privilege for you too, don't hesitate to hit the like button. I hope you'll join us again for another episode of BIPOC Outside.